You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Can open to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. Uh, that would be page 972 if you have one of the brown Bibles uh, under the seats. And we'll be looking at uh, chapters uh, 2, uh, verse 14. So 2 is the big number, 14 is the little number. And we'll read through chapter 3, verse 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word as he speaks to us. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your Son. We thank you for speaking to us through the Apostle Paul here in these words. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that now you would make these words come alive to us. And you know each person in this room. You know what each person needs. You know those who need to be rebuked. You know those who need to be encouraged and strengthened. And you have the power to do these things. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that now, that you would strengthen us all, that your word might not fall on deaf ears, but that we might 
not only be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Aside from stories of tragedy and catastrophe, stories of controversy are the things that make the news and sell and get people's attention. You know, for those of you, maybe you've read, kept up with social media a little bit, and by far, controversy seems to be what interests people most on Instagram and Twitter, Facebook, and such things as these. Everybody loves a good debate and a clash of personalities and nasty things said about those other people. And of course, the church has actually never been without controversy either. If you were to take sort of a just your finger and randomly place it on the timeline of church history, uh, you would certainly find any number of major controversies. Athanasius versus Arius, Augustine versus Pelagius, Martin Luther versus the Roman Catholics, Charles Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy, and we could go on and on to our present day to issues of masks, politics, and so many more controversial things today, it's almost mind-boggling. And that's to leave out controversies in the church about carpeting and such things as that. And here we have one of the earliest controversies in the church, one of the most significant controversies. Here we have the Galatians uh, are somewhat confused about the nature of the gospel, and so Paul recounts a clash that he had, Paul, this incredible apostle, one of the most significant people in human history, with Peter, one of the other most significant people uh, in the church of their day. And we are, you, for those of you who've been following along, you're like, um, this is in Genesis. Um, Pastor Josh uh, is uh, taking time to be with his wife and new baby, so I guess we can let that happen. Seems like a good idea. But actually, we are not taking as much of a detour from Galatians as you might think. Because if you read the book of Galatians, and I would encourage you to sit down and read the whole book this week, Abraham is actually quite an important person uh, in the book of Galatians. And the relationship of Abraham to the Mosaic law. Because the relationship of the law to Abraham's life actually undergirds what's going on here, which is the relationship of God's law to God's gospel, which is what Paul is addressing here. And one of the most basic, this is the ABCs of Christianity, and yet one of the things where people so often get way off track. What we will do this morning as we focus on these verses is touch on four things. We're going to look at the word conviction. We'll look then at the word justification. Then the word transformation. So conviction, justification, transformation, and finally the necessity of the cross. Because Paul emphasizes the cross here in this passage. And I confess to you that this is a bit of a last minute. Uh, I was called up yesterday. So if something doesn't make sense, please do talk to me afterwards, okay? 
Uh, but hopefully it will make sense because this is one of the densest parts of Galatians. It's kind of like the big picture uh, summary thesis statement that Paul is making. So we want to um, understand this. So the first word is conviction. Paul has himself here in a juicy controversy. But he takes us through a surprising twist as he talks with Peter, as he recounts his conversation with Peter, which honestly would have been quite shocking. You can imagine it would be almost something like, you know, I am standing up here talking to you and somebody stands up and says, whoa, stop right there. You are not saying things that are in keeping with the Bible. It would, it would definitely be a bit of an awkward moment. Everyone would be like, uh, what do we do now? Paul says in verse 15, he starts in an, a likely place. He says to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth or by nature and not Gentile sinners. That's kind of what you would expect given the controversy. Because there's a tension between the two ethnic groups, broadly speaking, in the church, the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul sets himself with his Jewish friends as having an advantage over the Gentile sinners. He starts with this insider-outsider language, and the Gentiles are the outside sinners. Because God's law was given through Moses to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. And as far as they were concerned, the Gentiles were lost out in the dark, blundering around, and God's law had been given to them and had given them light. So they were not ignorant. They weren't stumbling around in the darkness the way these morally, spiritually deficient, incompetent, and dirty, even repulsive at times, Gentiles struggled. It's kind of like if you think back a few years when progressive car insurance had these commercials about even a Neanderthal can get it, you know, this kind of like, the, the Gentiles couldn't even get it, right? They were just lost. But here's the surprising turn that Paul makes in verse 17. He says, but in our, and by our he means you, Peter, me, and those Jews now that are in the church, endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. That is a surprise. The Jews who had the law and all the benefits of the Old Testament covenants, they meet Christ and now realize that they too are sinners. They're on the same level as those Gentile outsiders. I don't know if you've ever had a sort of shock and surprise moment in your life where you thought you were such an awesome person and then you and you look down on such and such a person or people and then you suddenly realize that you are actually a lot more like them than you would have liked to have realized. That is the moment here. Sinners, you know, we throw this term around as kind of a religious term, are those people that violate any part of God's law, rituals, ritual purity, or actual like right and wrong ethical points of God's law, whether it's human or divine. It is a person that fails to measure up. 
And once you fail to measure up, you're essentially on the outside. You're considered irreligious. And this term sinners is not limited to the Bible, actually, in Paul's day. Lots of people would have used the term sinner as unmeasuring up people. And what's remarkable is if you read the Bible that there was kind of a class of people that were sort of easily lumped in as sinners. Tax collectors, prostitutes, thieves, liars, people that cheated out on others, backstabbers. Paul would have been a Pharisee, which would have been not in the class of sinners. He would have been one of those people that would have kept every point. But when he encounters Jesus, when Jesus shows up, there is conviction. He's suddenly ill at ease with sins that he didn't even realize he had. Christ, when he comes to any person, he exposes all of us as sinners. I don't know if you've ever been to somebody's house who they were substantially wealthier than you, for example, and you sit down at the table and there's like 3,000 utensils and you're kind of like, okay, you're watching to see what other people are going to do to make sure you grab the right one when you need to. You know, the manners and the conversation are just way outside your comfort zone and you feel small. You feel out of place. Or perhaps you have a friend who is in every way seems perfect. And you like feel like such a dirty, rotten cheat whenever you hang out with them. Like they're just, they just have so much integrity. They don't do anything wrong. You can't even seem to get them to say one bad word. They won't even say stupid. And so you, you feel uncomfortable. And that is how it is with Jesus. When I was younger, I actually struggled to read the Sermon on the Mount because you read through it and you're like, I am a rotten person. And who really wants to feel rotten? You stay away from those things. You know, Jesus says that if you lust, you commit adultery. If you hate someone, you murder. There was actually a college professor who had their students read the Sermon on the Mount and then do a survey as to how they felt after they read the sermon. And all of them said they didn't much like it, even though everybody loves the teachings of Jesus, right? So I stayed away from it. And Jesus, what's interesting, actually refers to his own generation of fellow Jews as a adulterous and sinful generation. Talk about winning friends and influencing enemies, right? In fact, Jesus' teaching and Jesus' moral life almost is repulsive because it makes you feel like you don't belong and you have this fear that if you hang out with them too long, you will be exposed for who you really are. And Jesus does, in fact, expose our sinfulness. You could think of back when we were going through John, the woman at the well, Jesus actually puts his finger right on what she's been doing, which is a serial of relationships, adulterous relationships, and she's in one right now. And Jesus can even expose those who seemingly are most pure in society. There's nobody 
not just those who are down and out, but those who are up and out actually also get weeded out, fingered out, so to speak, by Jesus. He is the great equalizer, and he shines his light into all of our hearts and minds and shows us who we really are. So verse 17, Paul says, we were found to be sinners for Paul the Pharisee and Peter. Jesus' very mission shows us who we are. But one of the things that we need to do is resist the desire to avoid Jesus. And this is true for anybody, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. Christ is absolutely necessary for all of us, as we will see later. But we have seasons in life where perhaps you stop reading the Bible because it just makes you feel uncomfortable and you want to stay away from Jesus. Because God's word, the words of Christ, cut us right to the heart. But rather than stay away, what we want to do is cultivate confession. Confess when we have done wrong. We want to repent and turn and go in the other direction. Read God's word more. Pray more, not less. And let Jesus actually search your heart and life because actually one of the things you'll find is even though Jesus makes you uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, he actually is also the person that is going to welcome you more than anybody else will and help you deal with your sin. So what's interesting is Paul continues in verse 18. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, that is, recognize that the law is good and I've broken it. I prove myself to be a transgressor, he says. Paul refers to himself as a transgressor. Notice he has moved away from the us and we language and says, I am a transgressor. He's highlighting his own sinfulness and not simply wagging his finger at Peter. So the second word, justification. And this is where we start to see that Jesus is good. Jesus not only shows us the problem of our sin and brings conviction, he is also going to then, unlike that, those self-righteous people that love to point out when you've gone wrong, you know, and you, anybody who has multiple kids knows that there's, that's a certain dynamic that often children have is they love to point out, you know what so-and-so did, right? But Christ doesn't just point out what we've done. Christ is going to do more. Paul recognizes himself as among all the other transgressors, the convicts, the lawbreakers, the cookie snatchers. And he recognizes that there's a flip side to the story when Jesus shows up, which is justification. And you notice that this word shows up four times in two verses, in verses 16 and 17, four times he talks about justified. And notice that it's passive, right? Little English grammar, right? When it, a verb is passive, it means it happens to you. You are not actively doing it. You cannot justify yourself in the way Paul is talking right now. Justification was a common term that had to deal with the court system back then. You would go into court, if you had the unfortunate situation of being dragged into court, you were waiting to hear the judge declare that you were actually in the right. That's what you want to hear if you find yourself in a court case in Paul's day. You want to hear to be called justified is essentially to be declared innocent 
you hadn't done anything wrong. You had actually done what was right. You were in good standing with the law. And it belongs to this group of words that have to do with what is just, what is right. And at the Galatian churches, they were trying, they were starting to try to keep the Mosaic law, the law that was given to God's people to show them how to live before God, particularly things like circumcision or food laws. You know, um, according to the Mosaic law, you can't eat bacon. That's bad. Some of you can't imagine that kind of life. But there are other things in the law as well, ethical things. But they were trying to keep that law along with holding on to Jesus. They, they were trying to put these two things together, and there were some teachers in these churches that were making this a confused issue. And Paul is adamant. He will not budge on this, that that is not how it works. You cannot have both Jesus and keeping the law in order to get right with God. But this is a very strong human tendency that heaven must be earned. Just as an example, a country song playing on the radio. It's a sad song. The guy who's singing, his, his girlfriend's wife has died. He says, where or where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so now I've got to be good in order to see her again, right? He thinks that, she, of course, she was good, so she's gone to heaven. And rats, I now have to be good if I ever want to see her again. That impulse is in every single human being. That we must do something in order to be right with God, in order to get into heaven. Or to add something to what Jesus has done. And you can see this across church history. You can see it across denominations. You can see it across theologians. You can see it across normal Christians. But Paul will not have it. There is nothing that can be added to what Jesus has done. There's no use trying to use part of the law in order to to top off, so to speak, what Jesus has done. It's like taking the absolutely perfect, pristine recipe and saying, you know what? This could just use another three cups of sugar. You'll ruin it. And it will not work. It will taste nasty. And Paul says at the end of verse 16, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Not some people, not those people over there, not those people over there. No one. No one by works of the law will be justified. No one by what they do will be declared before God as innocent. No one. In Psalm 143, the psalmist says, O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. He's praying and pleading with his king, and he's praying and pleading based on God's character 
not his. Not even this Israelite who would have had God's law is pleading, look at how I've kept the law. The pastor theologian Calvin said, not a drop of works which actually is quite freeing in one sense. It's not what we do, but it's what Jesus has done. Not works, just Jesus. And it is not about our performance, but about Christ's. I don't know if you've ever had an exam coming that you just knew you were doomed to fail. Now imagine, though, if that suddenly didn't actually count towards your grades. It was purely for the sake of perhaps you love mathematics or whatever that exam might be. And you got to do just whatever you jolly well pleased without worrying about what was coming. It is freeing. And when we look at what Jesus has done, when we look at how perfect the work of Jesus is, that stirs in us, knowing how lost we are without him, it stirs in us trust, that we will trust in what he has done and not what I can do or cannot do. And that in him, the final word is, actually, you are upright. You are innocent. You are righteous. It is too good to be true. And you wonder, is it that easy in one sense? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, in one sense, Christianity is way easier than people ever imagined. And on the other hand, it's way harder than you could have imagined. How often we struggle to actually embrace Christ because we think that we must do more than trust. We must appease God. We must add to Jesus' efforts. Or perhaps, perhaps God didn't really mean it. Perhaps all this good news about Jesus is is a fluke. It just seems too good to be true. Because I know deep down who I really am. So have you trusted and are you resting in the work of Christ? What is your hope when you think about how your life will end or when Christ shows up? What is it? You imagine yourself standing in front of God and what will you say? I did my chores every day. I never told a lie that I got caught with. Justification is apart from works. Justification is through Christ. Justification is by faith. Now, a very natural question arises at this point. Well, if everything is taken care of, Jesus has done it all, why not just keep sinning? Why not keep breaking the law if I'm not the one who's supposed to keep it? And that is the question Paul asks in verse 17. He says, is Christ then a servant of sin? And this brings us to our third word, transformation. Does Jesus, in attempts to help sinners in attempts to rescue sinners actually enable them to keep going on sinning 
Is Jesus an enabler? Or does he somehow turn these great Jewish boys into bad Jewish boys? And it is actually for this very question that many churches reject justification by faith alone. Because then what is the motivation for doing good in this life? Isn't that kill the motivation for doing what pleases God? Or does it? Christ actually shows up and not only does everything for you in keeping the law, but he actually is going to change your life by being connected to you. He turns all the categories upside down. He changes the expectation that you need to be a lawkeeper into this fact that actually you are a dirty, rotten sinner. He shows you that. But then Christ also brings with him and with his work serious transformation to you. Verse 19, Paul says, Through the law, I died to the law, so that the result, I might live to God. There's a change in Paul's status, right? He went from good Jewish boy to sinner, but he's transformed. He dies to the law that he might live to God. And he explains how this happens in verse 20. The manner in which this death in life transformation happens I have been crucified with Christ. Paul dies to the law through the death of Christ. When Christ takes the penalty, Paul, in one sense, is there with Christ. And he dies. But it's not merely a death to the law. It is with Christ. And now that Christ is risen, Christ, he says, lives in me. And Paul and every Christian who trusts in Jesus partakes of both the death and the life of Christ. Death to the law and new resurrection life. Jesus now lives in Paul. Jesus animates Paul. So how could Paul keep on sinning? It's kind of like in marriage. Take a single person, some single guy, right? who maybe had some bad habits before he got married. But once he gets married, his desires start to change in that union. He wants to please his wife as her husband. So he starts making some changes. Maybe he wears more deodorant now. Less slovenly, maybe picks up a little bit more. And that's only half of a picture because it's not like the wife is inside him making him alive or he died with her but the union you see brings about changes and the union that we have with Christ is so much more than that kind of union notice in verse 14 all this language of living Peter is going to force Gentiles to live like Jews but no that is not how this equation works Jesus comes in and changes the story. The law has passed, and now life is in him and by him. Look in verse 19 and 20. The language, again, of life and living abounds. I live to God. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. 
life in Jesus. This is the transformation. And this is one of the beautiful things about the gospel is that as one pastor said, Christ loves us as we are, but Christ loves us enough not to leave us where we are. And to go again with C.S. Lewis, he talks about how the goal of Christianity is often a mistake. We think that the goal of Christianity is to turn bad people into nice people, so nice people are left alone. Well, the message of the gospel is that there are no nice people. If anything, nice people might be some of the worst people you'll ever meet. Because as soon as you're not looking at them, they knife you in the back. The goal of Christianity is not to make nice people, but to make righteous people. So for those who trust in Christ today, do you see transformation in your life? Are there encouraging signs that Christ is living in you? Because you should be different. You might be just crawling though, maybe walking, maybe running. And if you're not sure, pray. Pray that Christ would be everything to you and would make his life be expressed in you. And if you're really struggling with whether or not Christ is there, ask a brother or sister. Because part of the role of the church is to actually help and encourage each other to say, hey, I see Jesus alive in you. Because sometimes it is hard to see. Does the idea of living this kind of life in Christ where you're not earning everything, but he is working and you are connected with him, does that at least make you feel like you want that? You want to be alive in Christ. You want to give up on all the striving and wasted energy that you have been putting forth to show God and to show other people, I'm a good person. The performance can end and life can be found in Christ. And this is one of the great mysteries of the Christian life is all of us together enjoying life in Christ, coming to understand what does it mean that we are alive in Jesus? Finally, one thing is that we need to look at is the necessity of the cross. We have to address the fact that Christ is the only way, because in one sense, that's at the heart of this issue. The Galatians were a little bit confused as to how many options they had to work with. They thought that maybe there's two. But Paul highlights three times the cross and crucifixion in verse 20, verse 21, and in chapter 3, verse 1. And what's amazing is that Paul puts this so at the heart of what he's talking about because this would have been an absolute embarrassment to everybody in the room. Crucifixion was the most shameful thing that could have happened to you. In fact, though the Romans perfected crucifixion as an art of torturing someone to death, they actually didn't talk about it in polite society. And they often tried to blame it on other people. There were other people that practiced crucifixion. Uh, they would, uh, the Parthians, they would say that it was the Parthians who actually did crucifixion where it first came from, which was essentially ramming someone's body onto a spike and letting them die. 
The Romans had strategized, though, to include the uh, not just bleeding to death, but suffocating and bleeding to death by stretching people out. Uh, so the Romans, even though they were good at crucifixion, didn't even want to own it. And nobody wanted to die that way. So that was shameful enough. But one of the other things that was shameful about Christianity both then and today is that this is the only way Paul is saying. A, uh, in a guy's memoir that I was reading, he became a Christian. He was an atheist in high school, became a Christian in college, and was in a philosophy class. And one of the, the professor found out that he was a Christian and pretty much was like, are you seriously telling me that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And he kind of was like, I mean, he's a brand new Christian. He was like, uh, yeah, I think that's what it says. Embarrassed. And he was scolded for having such narrow views. But Paul makes it absolutely clear that this is the only way. If there were another option, another way out, he says Jesus died for nothing. But Jesus, Paul says, did die. So there must not be another option. So what is interesting, though, is that Paul, rather than seeing this as an embarrassment, actually sees it as quite marvelous and wonderful. We've already noted that he sees that there's new life, there's resurrection life and transformation because of justification through Jesus. But in verse 20, Paul brings in a new title for Jesus that he hasn't used. In verse 20, he calls him the Son of God, which is somewhat unusual. He usually calls Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. But he highlights that it's the Son of God, but not just the title, but also what the Son of God does. He says that the Son of God loved me, and the Son of God gave himself for me. He highlights the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God, this special relationship that Jesus alone has with God. His high status, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the, the great hero that the whole Jewish scriptures have been looking for. He's like, it's this guy. This is the son of God. So now imagine in your own life, who is the person that you think of as the highest, best human that you know of? You know, you just kind of, if you get a chance and you kind of daydream, you're like, man, I would love to meet the queen of England or something like that. I don't know who it is. Maybe some actor, right? Or a politician or whoever you kind of look up to. Imagine them loving you. And when they hear that you're in trouble, they're right there to help you. Imagine them dying, jumping in front of a car, pushing you out of the way so that you can live. Just, just imagine the greatest person you can think of. Now multiply it by a gazillion billion, right? Because Jesus is the son of God. He was secure at the Father's side with nothing to want, nothing that he needed. He was content with the fellowship of the Father. He was content with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he had all of heaven adoring him. And then he gets up from his spot and he says, I've got a rescue mission. There are people that need me. And he enters history as a baby because he sees us in our sin and misery for you. 
while you might not even know the danger you're in, maybe not even caring, and you're not even looking for help. You're blissfully ignorant of the oncoming train as you play on the tracks. How often are we caught thinking that the exclusivity of Christ is an embarrassment, such a a rough spot on which to defend the faith? It seems like so cruel of a position to hold. And yet, on the other hand, think about all that Christ has done and how ungrateful it is to not recognize the gift for what it is. The value of Christ is the greatest, the value of his love, the value of him giving up his life for you. And notice how Paul, in faith, completely and personally seizes on the work of Christ. He doesn't talk about it as a theological abstraction. Yes, Peter, we believe in these theological principles on behalf of such and such humanity. He says that the Son of God loved me. The Son of God gave himself for me. That is real living faith. He takes hold of Christ's love for him personally. And in fact, this is the message of the New Testament. Do you have that personal seizing upon the love of Christ? Can you say, I trust that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me? 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we loved God, just to be clear but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. The very definition of love in the Bible is Christ giving his life for us. The father sending his son, the father also taking initiative. Or Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The magnitude of God's love is the son of God giving his life for you. So how do we respond to such a gift? On the one hand, this is the moment where if you don't know Jesus, you come to Jesus. If you realize how valuable Christ is and what he's done for you. On the other hand, it's not just the beginning of the Christian life. It is the whole of the Christian life. It undergirds our Christian life. Because as soon as we lose sight of what Christ has done for us, we will lapse into thinking about what we need to do as far as earning things, rather than a whole life lived in gratitude and thankfulness. It's honestly amazing to me how we have these moments in our lives where we see with absolute clarity, man, I really dodged a bullet. I'll never be the same again. Give them two weeks. It's January 9th. How many New Year's resolutions, you know, all those people are like, man, I'm ditching the smoking habit. I'm done with eating garbage, junk food, and my unhealthy lifestyle, you know? Most New Year's resolutions don't make it very long. And for the Christian, it's so easy to lose sight of Christ. Christ is, and his love is the gateway into the Christian life, and then we leave it, And we got to get on doing the good stuff we're supposed to do. But Christ is the foundation and the entirety of the Christian life. Because Paul says, and the life that I live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the Christian life from beginning to end. And you will never improve upon it, but you can enjoy it. And that is what is the fuel for the Christian life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Christ. And it is, you know, Heavenly Father, how hard it is for us to treasure Christ. We just don't even seem to have often the emotional, mental capacity, spiritual capacity to be as grateful as we ought to be. And I pray, Heavenly Father, you would give us more of your spirit so that we can know what Christ has done for us, for me. I pray that you would stir up in every person in this room, all of us, especially us as a church, with more hope, more gratitude, more faith in what Christ has done and what Christ can do for all those places where we are discouraged and think that nothing can change. I pray that we would look to Christ and I pray that we would daily, the life that we would live in the flesh, we would live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us, Heavenly Father, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.